Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode three hundred and twenty-six. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo, and you'll find him tweeting at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show on their website, allaboutjazz.com. They've also got a widget that you can install on your site that shows the latest episode of the Jazz Session. And the easiest way to find it is just to go to allaboutjazz.com and search for Jazz Session Widget. And then if you put it on your website... Let me know, because I will include a mention of that in my newsletter. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. And you can also become a member of the show at thejazzsession.com slash join. The show only survives because of your memberships. And I want to thank uh, Tim Hagens, who was recently on the show and who just became a member. You can also make a one-time donation if that uh, better suits your budget, although to keep the show running, sustaining memberships are really what I need, but donations are absolutely appreciated, and a bunch of folks have done that recently, and I thank you very much. Speaking of Twitter, a couple of weeks ago, I think it is now, a guy named Patrick down in Auburn, Alabama tweeted me to say that he was driving in his car, and from the back seat, he heard his two-year-old son say, put on jazzsession.com, data." Which is the coolest thing ever. And so uh, John is is his son's name. Hi, John. How are you, buddy? So this show is for you, pal. Uh, this show is going out to John and to his dad, Patrick, in Auburn, Alabama. And uh, it's very cool that we're getting him that young here on the jazz session. So thank you for the brainwashing, Patrick. And uh, John, you're awesome. Thanks very much, buddy. That's also my son's, one of my son's names. So actually, if you listen all the way to the end of this show, pal, you can hear my kids at the very end, Bernie and John. So with all that said, let me tell you about today's guest, who is the guitarist Mike Baguetta. Uh, I've seen him around town and uh, kind of learned about him, I guess, in the company of a bunch of other fairly adventurous improvisers maybe about a year ago. And he just recently put out a new record called Source Material. We'll hear my conversation after we hear a track from the record.
My guest is guitarist and composer Mike Baguetta. It's great to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. The new record is called Source Material, and uh, it features your quartet. And uh, I thought maybe we could start just by talking a little bit about how you approach composition and how you approach composition for this record. Did you have it... Were you conceiving of a record and writing tunes for that purpose for these three other musicians and you, or was it just kind of an accumulation of things over time? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely not uh, making a set of compositions for a record, um, but it, it is definitely writing for those other three guys in the band, for Jason Rigby, uh, saxophonist Ivan Opsvik, who plays bass in the band, George Schuler, who plays drums in the band now. Um, those guys are definitely in mind because the music is really special and in the way that it's really wide open. I try to keep the stuff really open. And so those guys have to kind of add a lot of themselves to it. So when I play that music with other people, it's always very different um, than it is with those guys, which is also great, can be great too. Um, but as far as writing the pieces, uh, my compositional um, style, I guess you could say, is pretty erratic. So I kind of, you know, when I can write a tune, when I can get a tune finished that I'm happy with, that's great and I'm really excited that I have this new song that like you know I haven't written anything for six months but wow here's this great tune all of a sudden but um, but that'll kind of happen like I'll write a tune you know maybe I'll write a couple of tunes a month maybe I'll write another tune a couple months after that after not writing things for a while and just kind of focusing on some other aspects of my musicianship um, so it's pretty much an accumulation of, of songs and there are other songs that I write too that you know they kind of come out in a certain way and I know that they're not appropriate for this group so I kind of have those filed away for something else that might become more appropriate for that at a later date said for example you might have a song all of a sudden after not having written for a while do you tend to find that you're a composer who works off inspirational moments rather than kind of getting up each morning at seven and yeah, uh, well yeah I definitely, I definitely don't get up at seven <laughs> yeah, or whatever yeah. <laughs> um but yeah it's definitely inspirational moments for, for a lot of the time but those are the things that i feel happiest with in a way uh when you know i hear this melody and i can kind of you know, I'll kind of record stuff into my phone as I walk around. If, if I get something that I can work, I can try to develop it later. Those are the things I'm happiest with that work that way, but you can't really depend on that if you want to have a set of material to write. So another another way that I write, uh, which has kind of been successful, and there's a bunch of these pieces on the new album as well as the other albums I have, where I kind of notice that there's some deficiency in my playing, and I write a tune around how I can kind of work on that. Like, for example, I play, you know, I played a session many years ago um, with some great musicians here, and one of the guys brought this tune that was in, it was like written in 5-4 time, and it was really slow. 
and I was, and I, you know, I just like made a mess out of it playing all over it, of course, you know, like you do so many times when you're trying stuff out and, you know, I kind of went home and I was like, well, you know, maybe I, I can sort of play in five. Uh, I've practiced that, but I've never practiced it like really slowly. And like, I noticed like, wow, I'm getting really lost in this cause it's just going by so slow. So I wrote a, a really slow tune in five, which is, it's called camp, the last track on the new album. And so that was sort of my experiment with trying to get better at playing in five really slow from that experience of not being able to do it. So sometimes, uh, my songs kind of arise from something that I would like to work on and get better at too. you ever write tunes uh that you then have that you find it's a challenge for you to play oh constantly yeah like all of them <laughs> you know uh i mean yeah and that's something i like about it being there is a challenge in the things that i'm making i mean um i keep i like to call them songs because i don't think of them as these like wide-reaching like compositions i mean there is of course like composition involved and stuff but i like the idea of having like you know a little set piece that's like not an evening length work or something, you know, but it can still be very profound in, in its smaller size. So, um, so yeah, a lot of the songs I write, I find really challenging for, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, a lot of them are based on kind of the texture that I want to come out of it, which can be a challenge to, to find in a performance. Um, there are some songs where the harmony is a little bit difficult to navigate. There's, you know, like I was saying, there's like some meter issues, um, but mainly with this quartet and the music that I'm trying to write for this quartet and that we play, it's I really want it to be loose, and I just want it to be, a lot of it just to be about having a very specific vibe. Um, a lot of music, especially in New York now, it, you know, like modern jazz-wise, is like, you know, it kind of has, it's very, it sounds like it's very difficult to play. There's a lot of, like, difficult meters, there's a lot of, like, meter changes, there's, like, these, you know, crazy kind of intervallic lines and stuff. And it's like just very difficult to play, which is cool. And that's very cool. But, but what I'm trying to do with this quartet is, is kind of anti that in a way. Um, and it's about keeping it really open and trying to be as creative as possible with a very loose framework, but still create a, a very specific vibe to each piece. Can you talk about how you used the word texture before? What you mean by that? 
yeah, I mean, texture, texture wise, I mean, very simply kind of like, I guess another word could be like density. Um, and when I'm talking about texture in a lot of these pieces, I'm specifically thinking about some of the ones that I think of as being very quiet. Um, making something very, playing in a way that's very dense to create a very dense texture. I don't, f it, it's very, it's difficult to do it creatively and have it sound like really great. But um, I think it's even more difficult to, to be creative and kind of make a profound statement in a very quiet way. And I think a lot of that has to do with patience. So when I'm talking about texture, I'm, I guess I'm sort of thinking about the density of sound, whether it's very quiet to like very busy and very loud. So something else, since we're talking about the quartet, something else that I try to, well, although actually I try to do this in a lot of my playing, um, I try to have a lot of patience with what I'm playing. And so if I play kind of some kind of a phrase or a short phrase or, or a long phrase, I guess, I try not to be afraid of leaving so much, to, I try not to be afraid of leaving a lot of space on either side of that, you know, like not being afraid to have silence happen. Um, and that's something that happens a lot with my duo with Chris Tyner, uh, Tin Bag. We were just on the West Coast giving a couple workshops and concerts, and that was something that we ended up talking a lot about in the workshops, that like part of that music and a lot of the way that, that I approach my playing and my music is to not be afraid of leaving silence. You know, like if you're having a conversation with somebody and there's like an awkward pause, maybe it doesn't have to be awkward if people can be comfortable with that, that silence happening. So texturally, you know, thinking a lot about that aspect of things. Yeah, I mean, I've, it's, I guess it's maybe even become a cliche, but people say to one another that you kind of know a relationship has advanced to a certain point when you can be quiet together, when you're kind of right, comfortable yeah. with silence. Yeah. yeah, right. So why shouldn't that be different with a band, you know? Is that something you, you feel like you've had to, to work on, a place you've had to arrive at, or did you always feel that way about silence and music? Well, I felt, I felt myself kind of having... I felt myself kind of coming up with this idea several years ago in my playing, uh, mainly as, I mean, it's something I like to hear when I listen to music and it's something I felt like I didn't hear enough in, in, um, in a lot of players, but everybody talks about it. Everybody says, oh, you got to leave space. But then a lot of people don't really leave a lot of space and maybe I leave like more than I should or more than most people would, <laughs> would like to hear. But, um, I guess maybe in a way it's a reaction against some of the, the way that other people play. There's so many great players here. It's hard to kind of. Like, you could just be another great guitar player, but it's nice to kind of have a concept that's different from other people, too. And this is something that I think is, I don't want to say lacking, because I don't know how necessary it is to society as a whole, but I think it's something different that I try to pursue, you know, whether I'm playing standards, like improvising on tunes in a, like a little a little gig, or if I'm a sideman on something, that's, the, that's what I try to bring to it. I try to bring, like, a certain amount of patience to my playing.
And do you talk with the other members of the quartet about leaving that space or, or try to find ways to, to direct things I, towards I it? I try to tell them absolutely nothing if, if I can. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, there is certain music that people, people will write. And when you're playing it, you need to have a lot of discussion about it. Um, or, ju- or like a regular amount of discussion just because the music requires that and you don't always know what people want from you when you're, when you're a sideman on a gig um, or, in, or in somebody else's band. But the reason that I'm writing for these guys, thinking about them, or the reason I'm asking them to play with me over and over again, uh, you know, and they're nice enough to keep saying yes, um, is because they have these qualities and they're playing already. So I know that I'm not going to have to to say to to say to like George or Ivan like you know maybe maybe leave a lot of space here and you know try to be really creative in this open space like that's going to happen um so i give them the charts which are you know pretty normal looking sometimes there's some symbols and stuff on it but um and then and then i try to say nothing and then we play the most the most i usually end up saying and there's always like perfect the first or second time the most i really ever end up saying to those guys is um if it gets really heavy but it's kind of a quieter piece. I'll say like maybe it's more, maybe it's more of a ballad. But I don't really say too much beyond that because I don't, I don't want to bring that aspect of it into it. I just want to, I want to keep everything really loose and open for everybody so that they can be themselves. Is there ever? Uh, I've had people say to me on this show before that they try to work in exactly that way, and that sometimes they encounter situations where people want or need more direction, where folks are uncomfortable with it just being. Nebulous isn't the right word, but being kind of self-guided or self-directed. Are are you guys now just comfortable enough as a band where that's not a where that's not an issue, or was it never really? A- it, it was never really an issue, and if it was an issue, then it wouldn't have worked. Hmm. Um, like if we if it had if it had been that way, and you know, guys were saying like, "Well, I don't really know what you want," like you know, and, and in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking like, "Well, it's not really just what I want because it's not me; it's you too." So I never really wanted that to enter into this. I mean, I have other things written that are that are really specific, but that's why we're not playing them with this band. That's why it's for something else, you know. So, so it was never an issue. Um, and if it was, it, I I knew that it wouldn't have worked, anyways. You know, I mean, these guys are great at uh, at being themselves, and that's the most important quality. This uh, this next thing I'm going to say. I- I mean as a compliment, not as a not as a description of Uh-oh. your music being derivative. But this music sounds to me like, uh, in many places, kind of like Jim Hall playing the music of Ornette Coleman. I mean, it just has this... Wow. It has, in many ways, this really kind of beautiful, lyrical, very intentionally melodic aspect that is that sometimes feels to me like it's been put on a boat and pushed out to sea, like kind of set adrift from what we might expect, which I really like about it. It's Great. It's unpredictable, but really lovely, I think. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. Um, I mean, those those two guys are definitely like some of my biggest influences jazz-wise. I mean, Jim Hall is is amazing. I, I've been lucky enough to like kind of take some master classes with him and, and got to know him a little bit a long time ago, and um, he said some really important things that I... I keep in mind to this day when I'm playing and writing and stuff and and Ornette's music is like man I don't even know what to say it's just like so joyful and like this has this amazing energy that I find really attractive to it um yeah thanks (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) can you say anything more about the stuff from that Jim Hall said that you remember or that's been useful to you over the uh well yeah like something he kind of used to talk about a lot was like in these master classes, he would always say, like, you know, he was trying to play 
he was always trying to think of like the guy in the back of the audience and trying to make his notes reach out to that that last guy like way out in the back who like paid as much money as the guys out in the front you know and um and that's kind of like a really weird thing to think about like when you play an instrument that you're not putting air into like if you play the trumpet or or you know the saxophone or you're singing um you kind of, you can, I feel like, and I've never, I've played trombone like a while in high school, but those days are long gone. But it seems like you could kind of do that a little bit easier than if you're pushing down a string with one hand and then like lightly picking it <laughs> with the other hand, you know, like. It's hard to project to the back of the room when you're doing that. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, of course, there's like amps and stuff, but he's not talking about, he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about the intent of your note, the intent of your note reaching your audience on kind of a deeper level, or at least that's the way that I interpreted it. So that's something I always think about, like trying to just play in a way where it's like you're touching as many people in the audience as you can um, in a way that's really direct to everybody, you know, to kind of connect them to the music, which is ultimately what it's about. How aware are you of uh, of feedback from the audience or it, are you – you hear musicians who say, oh, I'm just as happy doing this in my bedroom and that always kind of sounds like bullshit to me, but – uh, I'm interested in your perspective of what it's like in front of audience. <laughs> yeah, well, there's an element to that. I mean, like, you know, you have to enjoy it on yourself, by yourself. Sure. Um, otherwise, it'd be weird that you're doing it in the first place. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, the, I mean, you know, listen, the audience is, that's sort of the other half of it for me. You know, like, I, I enjoy music and I enjoy guitar and I enjoy what I get out of it. But, I, but yeah, the other half is I enjoy kind of giving it away, too. Um, so I think it's pretty important to me. On, on the other hand, like while I'm playing, I'm not thinking about them in the sense that like if they're like cheering or if maybe they're like shuffling around and being bored, I'm not necessarily letting that influence the way that I play. It may happen subliminally and I don't know it. You know, if people are like leaving, I might start playing poorly or something. But um, I'm not really too concerned with their immediate feedback in the moment. I mean, I'm going to play the way that I play for them and hopefully they're going to like it. And then, you know, I like talking to people afterwards and beforehand and stuff like that. But, but yeah, I mean, the audience is really important. If you didn't have an audience, then you wouldn't be able to do this. Yeah. When uh, you mentioned thinking of these uh, compositions on source material uh, more as songs and as kind of somewhat more contained statements when you play this music live is that the same approach you take or do they kind of expand into the space they do they do expand uh something we do a lot is we kind of go from one tune to the next to the next and we'll do like little interludes in between them um which again i think that's something like i said like three years ago i was like hey let's try this on a tune and now we just like end up doing it all the time and like these guys know the music so well like we played it um firehouse 12 a couple of days ago which is like this amazing venue in new haven that we had a blast at uh, you know, and we like play the first tune and inevitably sometimes these tunes kind of devolve into like group improvisation and Jason started playing the theme to another song, which I, I prepared the set in order beforehand, but he didn't know that that was the next one anyways, but he ended up playing it cause that's what he was feeling. Cause he knows the, the music so well. And it was like this really beautiful moment. So a lot, a lot of times they will kind of run together in ways that make sense to one or more of us at a time. We don't, we don't necessarily play head solos head next tune head solos head sometimes we do and that's cool but sometimes it's like head solos group solo somebody plays an intro we go into another tune maybe we just play the melody at the end so we kind of put these little um i don't want to call it a medley because that sounds weird but i guess that's what it is (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like a really beautiful thing though to have the other members of the band as 
as invested in the music as you are and really kind of feeling the music in the same way. Yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, I mean, they, you know, like it is, it is very much my band. Like I am the one kind of like, you know, doing all the things that nobody wants to do in a band, <laughs> in right. a band, you know, it's not like a equal thing. Like I'm getting the gigs and I'm renting the cards, I'm driving around and I'm paying them because they deserve every, everything I can give them. Um, but that's the great thing about having a band. That's why I'm not trying to hire like three super famous guys for this gig and then three different super famous guys for the next gig and then three super famous guys for the next gig. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in long-term relationships because, because of that kind of like musical intimacy, I guess that, that that's the only way that you can get it. You know, I mean, I've been playing with Chris Tyner in this duo for, um, we were figuring this out last week for seven years now. And there's things that happen when you play in a duo with seven years with the same person that is not going to happen when you haven't been. Um, and those things are, those things are, are really important in music. I mean, the, if you think about everybody's favorite band, I mean, whatever, whoever it is, you know, chances are they've been playing together for a long time. I mean, like, you know, the Rolling Stones, but they sound great. It's the same guys for, you know, I think 150 years. years. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So you, you get to the, a certain level musically where things are going to happen that you're not going to get to any other way. And to me, a lot of the times, those are the most important things in music. Yeah, I've always found it funny that uh, this particular genre of music is the one place where it's uncommon for groups of people to stay together. It, it is a little uncommon, and that's really disappointing. I think, you know, back in back in you know the the 40s and... Well, even before the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, you've always had like bands that were together for a few years or, you know, you look at kind of like the Art Blakey thing. He'd have a set bunch of guys that would be great for like a year or two. And then one guy would leave and you get another guy and slowly the cycle of people kind of changes. But there's always sort of people in there when the new people come in and then the old people leave and then there's newer people, but then there's older people. And that's kind of a cool thing, too, where you can sort of keep something going for a long time. But yeah, I mean, just just like the same people for years and years, it is rare. It is rare, but I, I I wish it wasn't. Can we talk a little bit about uh, another record that you released, which is a prepared guitar record? Yeah, definitely uh, called Cantos, which I have uh, just been listening to over and over again, and I, I really love it. Can you talk a little bit about what you, why you did it, what you did to the guitar, kind of how that project came about? Yeah, let's see. So, so this actually, this album Canto is solo prepared guitar, you know, what I call etudes, kind of these improvised etudes. And I think I recorded this in 2003, actually. Um, I'll, maybe we'll do the long version of the story. Sure. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I, I went to Rutgers for jazz, jazz school, which was great. I had a lot of great teachers, like, um, Ralph Bowen and, and Ted Dunbar was there when I started, and Vic Juris and Stanley Cowell and um, Bill Fielder, who just passed away a year or two ago. And, uh, you know, these great teachers that were, like, really, really involved in, like, um, getting you to understand jazz in, in kind of a open, more open way than a lot of places are, I think. And for that, I was really grateful to all of them. 
so anyways, I graduated there from 2001 with a bachelor's degree, and uh, I'm from I'm from Agawam, Massachusetts, in Western Massachusetts. So after I graduated from there, I kind of I moved to Jersey City, right across the river from New York, and I was there for a couple of months. And then like 9/11 happened, and everything was like insane, and um, and I was kind of like depressed living there. Like I just I wasn't really working a lot at the time. I was practicing a lot, and I was basically fine, but I wasn't working a lot, and I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do and stuff. So. I moved back to Massachusetts. I, I moved back home with my parents for a few months, and um, and then I moved north of there up to uh, East Hampton, Massachusetts, for a while. And I was kind of playing the guitar then. I was still playing it. I still kind of liked it, but I felt like I wanted to do something different, and I was kind of like in, stuck in this rut of kind of like trying to figure out how to play bebop lines and stuff, and and that was enjoyable. But I figured there's so many guys doing that. Do we need another guy doing that? You know. So. I put the guitar down for a while. I didn't. I didn't really play for, you know, several months. Um, and I worked some odd jobs and stuff. And then I, I got a job teaching guitar lessons and stuff. So I was playing the guitar more again, but I wasn't really playing jazz all the time. And, and so slowly I started to kind of think about what I wanted to try. And I was listening to a lot of Derek Bailey records, and I got turned on to like the Fred Frith guitar solos album from the '70s. And uh, I started to kind of investigate this idea that you could play the guitar in a really different way, like just technically in a completely different way with all these extended techniques and stuff. So I started kind of trying my hand at it, you know, putting um, putting these little uh, electrical, they're used for electrical work, these little metal alligator clips on different parts of the strings and putting nuts and bolts on different parts of the strings and how kind of really just playing a note and listening really closely how that affects the overtone series of the string. Maybe that's sort of where my experiments with like playing less and letting notes ring out and silence kind of really began maybe. Um, and then this idea of like density and texture, like how when you don't know what the notes are you're going to play, uh, you kind of, you you know, you're not dealing with Western harmony so much anymore maybe just because there's this element of the unknown in what you're playing. You have to kind of think about other ways to build a piece. Um, and that's kind of why I was thinking about the things I recorded on there as these improvisational etudes because each one has a really specific element that's being focused on. Um, you know, one might be like, how long can I sustain kind of like a frenetic energy and until I think it's not being interesting anymore? Or maybe I'm just doing one thing. Maybe I'm hitting the string. I'm attacking the strings in a certain way. How many different ways can I attack the strings in this way to make it interesting before it gets boring, you know? And so I kind of graphed out all these different ideas of ways that I could kind of play like this. And I, I was kind of working on this for a long time, and uh, I decided that maybe I should record some of it. So the recording is, is pretty minimal, but I think it still sounds pretty good for what it is. It was just a mini-disc recorded in like a really giant art gallery up there, like really late at night. It was empty and quiet, and I was there for a few hours kind of recording these different things, and later I picked out the ones that were that were good. So, and then, uh, so I had a friend down in New Jersey um, who had started this this little label called Optical Sounds, uh, his name is Jesse Fisher, and they basically just put out these little editions of like 50 CDRs. So they put this out, and it was fine. You know, it was fine. Um, 
And then they sort of went out of print and stuff because there was only 50 of them, and eventually you lose all of them, you know, or sell a couple. And uh, so then later on, maybe uh, I think this was early 2010, I kind of rediscovered it again. I was listening to it, and I thought um, there was still some important elements in this work that were indicative of the things I'm still exploring now. So maybe it's something that, that deserves to kind of have a little bit more of a life. So, um, you know, I raised a little bit of money. I got it mastered so that the sound was much better. Uh, and then I kind of, um, I rearranged some of the tracks so they made a little bit more sense for where I was hearing it now. And, um, you know, I, we, had, we kind of redesigned the artwork a little bit. There's a great photo that we use, a couple of great photos we use from this guy, Mike Schiffer up in Western Mass, um, and uh, Karen Karen Chan helped design the CD. She also designed the cover to source material, by the way. She's a great um, video and film artist. And so then we put it, I, you know, I figured, I kind of gave it to a couple of labels, but, you know, labels aren't really interested in certain things if you're not at a certain level in your career and stuff like that. So I just said, well, I don't, you know, it's like 2010. I don't really need to be on a label, right, because, like, everybody buys stuff online and, there's no more record stores. So I started my own label called Mab Notes Music, and I just, you know, put it out that way. And uh, it's a pretty good package. I'm pretty proud of it. Some people have been picking it up and been been really into it, so I'm glad that that I did that. As far as still doing the prepared guitar thing, I don't do it anymore because I feel like, for me, it's kind of run its course. I kind of was at the end of what I wanted to do with it. There's a lot of other people that do it, that do much better things with it than I was doing. Um, but... You know that album is. I feel like it's an important document at that time. So, and you already hinted at this, but it sounds like some of the things you learned from doing that have carried over into your yeah. More regular oh yeah, definitely. Playing. And that's exactly why I wanted to put it back out. I mean, this idea of playing with different textures of density, um, trying to sustain a prolonged mood. Uh, how long can you just do one thing before it gets boring? I mean, th- there are extremes of that on this album. Um, which maybe is not the way that it happens now, but yeah, that was definitely the beginning of a lot of that stuff. Thank you. 
Have you done uh, much solo guitar performance? Uh, no. I mean, I've done some. I've done, you know, I've done like little little solo guitar gigs, like background mm. music stuff, which are always disappointing just because it's so lonely, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, one of the things I really like about jazz and about playing this music is the interaction with people. That's something that's really important to me, like being able to interact with another musician in a set, in a set uh, framework. I mean, that to me is kind of the essence of it or going out of a framework and coming back into it. But that communication is what's really attractive to me. So the idea of kind of playing for a couple of hours by myself is not necessarily the most attractive thing, although I do enjoy doing it. I mean, there's a track on source material, which is just solo acoustic Mm -hmm. guitar uh, called The Winter Moon, which, um, which I'm pretty happy with. You know, I love listening to it. Like, I love Ralph Towner. He's one of my favorite guitar players. And I think, you know, Me too. 70% of what he's done is solo and, like, beautiful and amazing. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of solo records I like, too. Like, Lee Conant has this solo record called Lonely, which is, like, plays Cherokee for 20 minutes and it's perfect, you know. Um, John Sermon has, like, these great, a couple of great solo records, you know. And, and some of this starts to involve overdubbing and stuff. But, but it's kind of nice when you can have a concept just on your own and execute it, um, in a really successful manner. I guess for me, that's not something that's really high on my list of things right now, but it could become more important someday. You mentioned the uh, tin bag duo with Chris Tyner. How did that get started? Uh, yeah, that got started because we were, uh, well, he lives, so I live in New York and Chris actually lives in Bakersfield, California, and he's from out in that area, uh, sort of North of Los Angeles. And we met in, um, 2001 because we were both invited to do the Betty Carter Jazz Ahead residency at the Kennedy Center. So every year, if if people aren't familiar with that, every year they kind of take um, 20, 25 uh, young musicians. So usually they're, I think usually it's like a, they're in college. Um, so 20 or 25 young musicians from all over the world who are uh, playing and improvising. It's a jazz thing, but also composing their own music. That's a really important part of the program. So they have you there for like 10 days or so, and they kind of like try to foster your your compositional ideas and getting you to play with other people. Although, in a way, it, it was like a very rushed experience because you have this concert to prepare for and the kind of the people guiding you are sort of chopping down your ideas and stuff just because there's only so much time and there's 25 people. And, you know, it's a, it's a good way to meet people. Um, it's a good way to meet people. I met Chris there. <laughs> And uh, and a, a couple of other friends that I, I've stayed in touch with and gotten to play with throughout the years. So definitely it was a it was a good experience um, for that aspect of it. But so there were times where like Chris and I we kind of just hit it off and became friendly with each other, and we were kind of complaining about the same things about this program. And uh, if you're a musician, you know a fast way to make friends is to complain about stuff together, <laughs> <laughs> like world class complainers. Um, but so we kind of stayed in touch and, you know, so this is in like 2001. So then those couple of years went by, I was talking about where I wasn't sure what my musical direction was. Chris turned me on to a lot of different music I wouldn't have heard at the time. He was really into Lester Bowie at the time, the trumpet player, uh, and some of the AACM stuff that I, I just hadn't been exposed to for whatever reason at that time. And he turned me on to it, like, you know, Anthony Braxton. So I was checking out a lot of that kind of music because of him. And that's another, another thing that sort of led me into like Derek Bailey and Fred Frith and... John Zorn's Book of Heads is another prepared guitar thing that I was really into at the time. And so I started experimenting with that. And I think I, I think I kind of wrote a couple of like graphic notation pieces and recorded them. And I, and I said, man, maybe Chris would like to check these out. So I mailed them to him or something like that. Maybe this was like even before 
PDF files or something were <laughs> available. <laughs> and uh, so we were kind of going back and forth for six, eight, eight, twelve months about different ideas about composition and things like that. And then I think at one point Chris Chris suggested like, man, we should try to do some of this together. Why don't I set up some gigs out here and we can you can come out and you know we'll just see what happens. So I said, man, that sounds great. I was using at the time on Canto and on the first Tin Bag record called There Just As You Look For It. That's all prepared guitar too. I was using this old. Uh, I found it in my you know my parents' closet. My dad plays guitar, and so one of his like old, kind of junkier guitars is this company called Encore, which apparently they made cheap plastic guitars for a while. I kind of had to like reassemble this thing, and I used it because I wasn't afraid to kind of to whack it a little bit and get some get some noise out of it. So I was using kind of like this cheaper guitar for that stuff. And so I flew out there to California um, with that guitar and a bunch of like preparations and stuff. And we had, we were armed with some compositions we put together. So a lot of like, a lot more like graphically notated than it is now. And uh, we, I think we did four or five gigs up and down the coast. And then we, at the end of it, we, Chris had a friend, uh, Jeff Kaiser, who runs the PF Menem label, who uh, I got to know a little bit. And he was into the idea of recording our duo out there. So we made a record when we were out there too, because we thought it was going pretty well. And we were happy with what was, what we were doing at the time. So that was the start of it. And uh, that music has really evolved over the last seven years. I mean, what we're playing now, you know, I'm playing my regular guitar, regular tuning. He's playing trumpet with, you know, just a few different mutes. And it's very spare, minimal, minimal ideal, a minimal kind of aesthetic that we have now. And we have a couple of tunes that we're playing um, that are originals. We have a bunch of tunes that are originals that we're playing. And uh, we're also playing a lot of, like, country tunes. Like, we're playing, uh, we play it all the time a lot, which, like, Kitty Wells made famous. And we're playing a, we're playing a Willie Nelson tune, which is kind of based on the Tennessee Waltz. And we did, on the last album, Bridges, we did a Bob Dylan tune. We did um, Just Like a Woman. So we're kind of incorporating elements of that into the way that we're playing, too. that come from a shared interest that you guys had it did yeah, yeah it did we were kind of point well our music the music had kind of turned into more again more like song oriented stuff or like very abstract minimal interpretations of what a song could be uh and at a certain point i think chris 
maybe I think Chris was the one who suggested like you know hey maybe we should just play this tune and I love that tune and we we worked out a little arrangement in a few minutes and it worked and so we we like to do more of that stuff too you know and it's not so much that we play the tune straight we play it and we interpret it the way that we play which can which can get a little more abstract but very spare and very quiet and uh, just kind of exploring that space inside these songs What is it like harmonically to improvise on that kind of source material, if you'll forgive the terrible joke, like on the country tunes <laughs> seem, seem kind of sparse, oh, uh, harmonically speaking? It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I mean, harmonically, it's not, you know, there's not a lot of, like, altered extensions and stuff like that oh. that you have to think about, which is which can be cool, or you can think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think for me, I... I don't mind just kind of playing out of a major scale, <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. and trying to, again, trying to be really melodic with that. Like if you only have some of these notes to choose from, it's a challenge that I kind of embrace, you know, and if you listen to, and if you listen to those recordings, I mean, some of those like pedal steel solos or, or guitar solos or what's happening with the vocals. I mean, it's, there's nothing like groundbreaking harmonically, but it's like incredibly beautiful. And it's like a very deep thing that's, that I think is just as difficult as playing something that seems readily more complex. Can you give us a look ahead at all at some other projects that might be brewing or things that you're uh, cooking up? Yeah, th- you know, there's always a bunch of things rolling around in my brain that I'd like to try. Um, I've been playing with, I've been playing in a trio with uh, with um, Cameron Brown, the bassist, and Jeff Hirschfield, the drummer, and we do some gigs around town, like at Bar Next Door and other places here and there sometimes. And, uh, man, those two guys have been like some of my musical heroes, like since I was in high school. So I feel like totally thrilled that they agree to play with me. So I, I have some music that I'm writing for that. And we kind of do, I, you know, I bring a couple of different tunes that I like to play and, and we kind of interpret that a little differently. Um, so that's something I'd like to try to kind of do a little bit more with. Um, you said, or you said earlier when you were writing that sometimes you write a piece and you think, oh, okay, this, this song is not for the quartet. It's for some other project is there just some some feeling you have about it are there particular things you think oh this would work with this trio with oh yeah definitely yeah uh, definitely um yeah i think these different groups have a different they have a different feel to them they have a different vibe and when i'm writing if i'm writing something i'm not necessarily thinking about what group it's i'm trying to write something for but i'll write something and i'll kind of play it and i'll kind of think about it oh this would you know this would work a lot better for the quartet or "Mm, this would actually work a lot better for the trio, or this would work better for something that hasn't happened yet. So I'll just kind of file that away for sure. another day, you know, or maybe I can adapt it in a way later if I do need something for to fill out a recording or something like that. 
Um, but that's that's one group. Uh, you know, Chris and I are planning on playing together for a long time. The quartet thing is, I love playing with those guys, so I hope that that happens for a while. I have been writing, I have had some ideas for sort of a larger sound, um, you know, not like a big band or anything, but maybe like my quartet plus another horn or plus, plus um, maybe some different kind of poetry at a certain based on a certain theme that might happen. So those are some ideas I'm sketching out and that are kind of rolling around. Um, you know, there's a, there's kind of a far reaching idea to do. Um, I was talking about Karen Chan before this great video on film artists. We're kind of tossing around some ideas about a film and music project. So, but that's still in its infancy. So yeah, I mean, there's things on the horizon. I meant to ask before when we were talking about the Cantos album, whether that was a pound connection or just a coincidence. An Ezra Pound Cantos. Oh uh, no, or... yeah, it was a it was an Ezra Pound connection for sure. Yeah, those. those I I mean, uh, I know you're you write poetry, which is great, and I've checked out a lot of it. Um, but but poetry is a big influence on me for sure. Actually, when I was doing the prepared guitar thing, I wrote another set of compositions, which it isn't recorded, but I think there's something floating around somewhere of it where I wrote kind of a, a more extended piece for solo prepared guitar based on three poems by Laurie Sheck. Hmm. Um, who is this great poet I heard on NPR once, like driving somewhere, and they were just like reading her poems, and I was like, God, this is amazing. And I went and found the book and like read it cover to cover a million times, and and found a lot of inspiration from that. And Ezra Pound was sort of a peripheral inspiration um, for the Canto thing, yeah. When you say that poetry gives you inspiration, can you talk more about how that translates itself into music? Well, one one really direct way is um, the way that a poem is actually laid out on the page. You know, you don't have it written like a like a novel. It's not like you know wall to wall, left to right, words words words, sentence sentence sentence. You have a lot of space that's actually left on the page, and sometimes you know it has a lot to do with the meter of how you read it or how you, how the writer wants it to be interpreted. You know, for me, like trying to trying to translate to people, trying to convey the message that I want space left in certain places without having to sit there and hold their hand and say, leave more space here. Um, one way that I actually do that is when I write out a composition, um, I'll sort of lay out the staves almost like stanzas 
in a poem. So it's not always left to write all the way across the page. You know, sometimes there's short, there's some short stanzas that go halfway across the page, and then there's some space left, some white blank space left on the page from top to bottom, and then the next day will start halfway in. And so it's organized in a way where if you look at it, you know, because I don't, I'm not going to sit there and like make people learn my music by rote and go over it and over it and over it and over it. I, I you know, I have to give them music. Um, so they're going to have to look at something anyway. So they might as well, I figure they might as well look at something that gives them more of the idea of where the spaces are, where the, you know, talking about density and texture again, you can actually lay that out on the page. And that's something, you know, if you look at like Braxton's music, I mean, the graphic notation thing, he has a million different ways of kind of, uh, portraying that in his compositions when he's actually writing it out. Um, I mean, my stuff doesn't look as abstract with the symbols and things, but it is just still music on a stage. But I'll set it up like stanzas. Actually, on source material, the song called uh, The Sky and the Sea is one that's that's set up like that, for sure. And when you listen to it, you can really hear where the spaces kind of fall. Not too long ago, I saw you play at a little bar near NYU here in New York called Grassroots, and um, you were playing standards, and before we were recording, you were saying that that's something you still like to do. And I was really struck listening to you play how how free you seemed to feel to kind of just go where you felt like going, and yet the standards kind of retained you know some kernel of what makes them the recognizable tune that we know. But I really enjoyed the way you played with harmony and the way the four of you were interacting in that way too. So maybe you could talk just about a little bit about how you approach playing yeah, tunes. Yeah, man, that's another like huge compliment because that's exactly what I want to have. <laughs> I want people to know that that's what's happening because that's definitely what's happening in my mind and I think in a lot of the people that I that I like to play with. Um, that's what's happening for them too. I mean. Uh, you know, listen, I'm a jazz musician, first and foremost. There are guys who don't like to use that word and, and this and that, but uh, I, I don't really have a problem with the word. It, it pretty much defines what I do. I, I improvise inside a form most of the time. That's cool. I dig it, you know. Um, you know, I love the history of the music and everything. So playing standards for me is like, you know, that's like it, it kind of doesn't get better. Uh, and that's because it's very familiar material. You know, when I'm writing my own music, Obviously, I enjoy that too, and I think there's something important that I that I have to say in my writing. 
but um, but mainly when you're talking about playing and interpreting and reinterpreting a song, which really is what improvisation is at its highest level, you know, you're reinterpreting the material. Um, you know that that is a great thing to do when you really know the song. <laughs> you have to really know the song in order to reinterpret it. So, you know, if I'm going to play Stella by Starlight for the ten thousandth time, which I don't have a problem with because I love all these songs. You know, I'm going to try my best to make a completely different statement again. You know, that's kind of this ideal. Like, you know, there's certain guys in jazz that have this ideal, like, like maybe Lee Konitz is one of them that I got this idea from, or these guys that are really like consummate improvisers. Like, they're an improviser, and every time they pick up their horn, they're going to try to do something completely different. You know, and that's kind of a scary thing. Like, when are you going to run out of ideas, or like if you try not to prepare for what you're going to play? What do you do if you have nothing? If nothing comes out all of a sudden, you know, what do you do, right? And so, and so that's like a really exciting thing about jazz to me. So um, doing that on standards is nice because it's just so familiar. I've played, I've played, you know, these, you know, fifty, hundred songs that I like to play. I've played those so much more than my own compositions, um, which maybe is something I should rectify at some point. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, standards are kind of this thing that you automatically have in common with the people that you're playing. They've also played them 10,000 times, right? And hopefully, you know, the guys I, that I choose to play with, they also enjoy playing those things because they know that your ability to be fresh and to improvise on a standard is really only constrained by what you can come up with or by what you choose to do. You know, some guys say like, oh, I don't want to play Oh, by Stella, by Starlight again, I play it like a thousand times. But in my mind, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking like, well, why not? Then you can do something different every time, you know? And if you like yourself and the way you play, why should that be a problem? Um, so that's something. And, and, you know, of course, there's like a myriad of different ways you can play these tunes. You could play, you know, you could play them with a different feel. You could play them with different time signatures. You could try to do something different with them every time in like a, a more preconceived kind of a, kind of a notion. But so as far as improvising on these, like, yeah, I mean, my goal is to just be as free as possible. I don't want to have to think about the meter. I don't want to have to think about, you know, where one is, right? You kind of, the more, you, the more you play, you just kind of know that stuff. You just feel it. And, um, and when you're getting to that sort of a level, that's like when some really magical things can happen. Uh, one, one of my all-time favorite musicians, another one is Paul Blay. And, uh, man, you talk about being free on a standard, you know. It's not always just, like, going out and playing free and, like, obliterating the form completely. That can happen, and if that happens on my gig, I'm not going to be upset about it because that's, that's an option, right? Um, but if you're talking about playing inside of a form, which is what usually ends up happening, you know, you keep the form and you keep the harmony, um, there's a lot of things you can do with it, you know. People talk about, like, chord substitutions and altered chords and all this and that, and that's something that, I feel like I want that to happen naturally. So if I'm playing like Stella by Starlight and I've changed the harmony in a certain way, I try to really follow that with my ear and think about how the other harmony has to change. You know, There's a Paul Blay book called Time Will Tell, which is like one of his sort of interview autobiography kind of books. And, uh, you know, I don't know Paul Blay at all. I think maybe like half of what he says in the book is lies but <laughs> but even <laughs> even if it is i think it's like really it's really deep spot on kind of stuff that he's saying <laughs> and one thing he talks about and he talks about it specifically on the sunny meets hawk record that he was on the sunny rollins and coleman hawken records that he's that he's playing piano on and they play all the things you are and he takes his famous solo which just like goes over the bar lines and all over the harmony and stuff like that and he's talking about his concept 
And I'm mentioning this now because this is something like I, I didn't know this beforehand, but when I read it, I said, man, that's exactly how I'm thinking about this. He was saying something about how you have these two lines. You know, you have the, the one line, which is the preset harmony and the preset composition. And then if you think about another line, which is your improvised solo and the way you're interpreting this preconceived composition, and that second line, which is what you're creating, that's almost like an elastic rubber band. You can stretch it out as much as you want because it's always going to connect to the other end of the line. So you can go way out. You can change the harmony like crazy, but you're going from point A to point B. And that's another thing uh, uh, my teacher Ted Dunbar talked about a long time ago, which really didn't make sense to me until a few years ago, as so often is the case. You know, he talks about your, you start at point A and you got to get to point B. And those, maybe those can be anywhere. You can choose wherever those points are in a song and you have a lot of different ways to get there by altering the harmony or changing, you know, changing rhythms and changing meter. And if you're playing with people that are kind of simpatico to that, they pick up on it and the listener gets taken on a, on a pretty exciting journey, hopefully, where, you know, they might not really realize what's happening time-wise or, or harmony-wise, but they know that it's very different, and then all of a sudden people are connecting in the same spot. And that's a pretty exciting thing. So that's, I guess in a nutshell, I don't know how clear that is, but that's sort of the way I like to think about playing on standards. Uh, any upcoming shows that you want to mention? Uh, yeah, December 22nd, Thursday night uh, at 8.30. The trio I was talking about before with Cameron Brown and Jeff Hirschfield and myself is going to be a bar next door in uh, Greenwich Village in New York City. So we're psyched to play there. It's a great place, and um, I'm always, like I said, I'm always thrilled to be able to play with those guys, so it should be special. My guest is the guitarist and composer Mike Baguetta. The new CD is called Source Material. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thanks for doing it. Man, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show for a while, so I appreciate it's really it. special. <laughs>
That's music from guitarist Mike Baguetta. His new CD is called Source Material. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. And today's show, specially dedicated to John and his dad Patrick down in Auburn, Alabama. Please do become a member if you like what you hear at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month. And don't forget, we've got a bit of a membership special going on for the next two people who join at the middle or top monthly or yearly levels. So that's either $25 a month or $50 a month. Or on the yearly side, $250 a year or $500 a year. For the next two people who join at one of those levels, you will receive a copy of the DVD CD set Seasons by guitarist Anthony Wilson. It's very cool. It's a performance for four guitars that were built to be played together by the luthier John Monteleone. And uh, it features Anthony, Julian Lodge, Steve Cardenas, and Chico Pinheiro. And it's well worth seeing and hearing. And so that DVD CD set can be yours if you become a member at the middle or top monthly or yearly level for the next two people. In the meantime, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. <laughs>